0: see you again. Welcome and thanks for joining Hope Awakens. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts in this riveting series. And if it's your first time tonight, you've joined us for part five. Wasn't John's last program on the Ten Commandments amazing? If you missed it and want to catch up, just go to our website at hopeawakens.com.au and click on the previous program's link. It was tremendous, so you don't want to miss out. We're in for another amazing program from John tonight, From Failure to Victory. But before we go to John, let's take a couple of your questions. Gary, what questions do we have tonight?
1: Well, Rebecca, again, we have some very, very good questions tonight. First question, God seems a bit self-centered because His Ten Commandments begin with these words. You shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus 20, verse 3. Please explain. Well, that's a very perceptive question indeed. When you think about it, God is our creator and therefore the source of life. And without God, there is no life. So as Daniel said to Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, God holds your life in his hands, Daniel 5.23. So you see, actually God is thinking of us when he says, put me first in your life because he has life. But there's another reason. This commandment tells us that God is a relational being. He wants us to make our relationship with Him our highest priority in life. You see, the Ten Commandments are all about how to preserve our most important relationships in our lives. The first four are designed to protect our relationship with God vertically, the last six, our relationship with fellow human beings. So you see, if we put God first, then all our other relationships will last, last the distance. You see, if God has first place in my life, then I'm going to keep the command to honor my parents, to be faithful to my wife, and to protect the lives of others and respect their property, which of course is sadly one reason why society is in trouble today, because we've forgotten God. He's not our first priority in life, and therefore we mistreat other people. Question two. Pastor Bradshaw quoted 1 John 3, four. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. What's really the big deal about breaking the law or the Ten Commandments? Well, that's an excellent question indeed. You see, it was Jesus who said the Ten Commandments can be summed up as number one, Loving God with all of our hearts, our soul and our mind. That's the first four commandments, in fact. Secondly, he said, love your neighbor, your fellow humans as ourselves. That's the last six commandments, which you see is why Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And also, which is why we said in the last question, that the 10 commandments are all about how to preserve our most important relationships in life. You see, when I sin, someone gets hurt because I break these laws of love. I break a relationship. I hurt someone, but ultimately, I hurt God. You see, that's the big deal with sin. I hurt someone. I affect relationships. Well, let's go to question number three. John Bradshaw said the Ten Commandments, or the Covenant, can be written in our hearts. Now, how does that happen? Very good question indeed. When we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, this has the answer. The Bible says, Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, did you see it? It's the blood or the death of Jesus that's the key. When I come to Christ sincerely, just as I am, that's the moment I'm forgiven of all my sin. I'm justified or counted righteous before God, and I begin the life eternal, but I also become a new person. God writes His laws in my heart and in my mind. And it can be yours and mine right now, as the old song says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Glad we could answer these questions tonight.
0: Thanks, Gary. I love the thought that the Ten Commandments are all about protecting and preserving our relationships. Well, with that, let's go straight to John Bradshaw now.
2: In June of 1991, a 19-year-old man stood in a courtroom in Virginia Beach, Virginia, as he was sentenced to 100 years in prison for a crime he maintained he never committed. There was no doubt a crime occurred, and it was awful, a crime against a child. But no DNA evidence tied the man to the crime. He had an alibi. The young victim later said that the victim was coached to identify Darnell Phillips as the perpetrator. And although law enforcement claimed Phillips had confessed, he says he never confessed at all, and no confession was ever written down. Even though the legal system so often works very well, and even though there are so many wonderful people working in the system, it didn't work well for Mr. Phillips. When the victim of the crime became an adult, the victim maintained Mr. Phillips did not commit the crime. Darnell Phillips eventually walked out of prison, on parole, after spending 27 years in prison, for a crime he did not commit. Michael Morton was called by police one day and told to immediately go to his home. He arrived to find a crime scene. His three-year-old son was safe, but his wife had been killed. Mr. Morton was sentenced to life in prison. Eventually, DNA testing revealed that not only had Morton not committed the crime, but another man was the actual perpetrator and was guilty of another similar crime committed nearby. Mr. Morton spent almost 25 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. There are many similar stories, unfortunately. Sometimes mistakes are made and the wrong people are imprisoned. Sometimes they're executed. And tragically, even though the system is filled with outstanding individuals, there are times when these miscarriages of justice are not the result of a mistake, but the result of something far more sinister. You can imagine that a court trial is a complicated affair. There's a motivation to find justice. There's a desire to hold the right people accountable. There's a need to make society safer. Evidence has to be collected. Interviews must be carried out. Leads must be followed up. And a trial must follow certain conventions. Things must be done right. Lawyers do their very best to see to it that their clients have the best representation possible, and they should. Now, we know something about trials. If you remember back... The O.J. Simpson trial in 1995 spanned 11 months. Even today, we remember Judge Lance Ito, Marsha Clark, Johnny Cochran. If it does not fit, you must acquit. One writer called it the Super Bowl of murder trials. About 30 miles in a straight line from where I'm standing right now is the town of Dayton, Tennessee. In 1925, Dayton played host to the Scopes Monkey Trial, as it became known. John Scopes was a young high school teacher accused of violating the Butler Act, which made it illegal in Tennessee to teach human evolution in any state-funded school. There were high-powered lawyers. For the prosecution, a three-time presidential nominee named William Jennings Bryan, who was the Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson. For the defense, Clarence Darrow, a famous defense lawyer. Funny enough, there was a business owner in Dayton at the time named J.R. Darwin. He had a big sign outside his clothing store saying, Darwin is right inside. Now, last time we were together, we learned that knowing and embracing God results in a radically altered life. That's what you heard a few moments ago. Your life and God's life get on the the same frequency and your life begins to change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's plan is to make a new person out of each person. You could say that what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit will be seen in your life. Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said against such, there is no law. But as you reflect on obedience, you might realize that you're not acing that. So how important is it to live in harmony with the law, God's law? Some don't think it's so important, but when they hear the judge say minimum four years in prison, they realize then how important it is. Now, according to the Bible, there's going to be a judgment one day. Now, does that make God bad? No, it makes God transparent. If the state or the, the federal government imprisoned people or executed people or exonerated people without a trial being held, we'd call that tyranny or, or carelessness. Instead, we have trials. You have the right to be tried by a jury of your peers or judged by A jury of your peers. Now, sometimes the jury makes mistakes. The prosecution, the defense, the judge, because they're human and they don't always get it right. But in God's courtroom, there are no mistakes made. So how can a person face judgment, God's judgment, with confidence? And when is this judgment going to take place? As a matter of fact, I've got a court date coming up. Pretty serious. Am I nervous? Well, no, I'm not nervous. And the reason I'm not nervous is that I've got a good lawyer. And it isn't that I'm innocent. I'm guilty. Very guilty. But I'm not worried. So let me tell you more. There's an arresting passage in the Bible that tells us we're all gonna have to stand trial one day for crimes that we did commit. You've heard it said that the gospel is the good news, the good news story of how Jesus came to offer everlasting life to a sinful world. Later in the Bible, we find something called the everlasting gospel, the final gospel message that will go to the world. It's God's last message of mercy. And even though it's clear this message is important and that it's for now and that it's for you and me, it's a message that shockingly has been mostly ignored. We're not going to ignore it. The book of Revelation is a fascinating book. It speaks of trumpets and seals and plagues and thunders and mountains and kings and Armageddon. The challenge is that many people have, or the challenge that many people have, is that they cannot see the forest for the trees. I'll tell you what the book of Revelation is about. And I don't mean to be overly simplistic here. But you know there's no need to overly complicate things when it comes to the Bible. The book of Revelation begins with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the light of the world. It shows how he's got to work in the world in the latter days of Earth's history. And of course, in that same book, You read about a titanic spiritual struggle in earth's last days. But let's jump to the heart of the book of Revelation where we read this. It's Revelation 14, verse six. Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. An angel in the book of Revelation is a messenger. So we have a messenger. And a message. And the angel is flying right up there in the midst of heaven, up where everyone can see, stressing the importance of the message that the angels are bringing. It's for everyone to hear. The angel has the everlasting gospel. The gospel is the good news. And we see the final gospel message going to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then will the end come. Here's a gospel message to go to every inhabitant of planet Earth, and everyone will have the opportunity to respond. Whatever it is, it must be important because God wants everyone to hear it. Everyone will before Jesus returns. It's to be preached to every nation, the Bible says. And what is the gospel? Remember that word good news. Remember that, that, that concept. This is something to, to welcome, not something to shy away from. And specifically that message is this. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. Fear God. No, not terror, but respect and reverence and awe. And if you had a little holy fear, I would not think that would be out of place. Love for God. A relationship with God that recognizes his transcendence. A thorough surrender to the Holy One of Heaven. The hour of his judgment has come. Look at that. Judgment. Now, we'll come back to that soon and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. You remember that the conspiracy afoot in the world right now is led by a fallen being that wants the worship that only God is entitled to. So here, you see a call pointing people to worshiping the creator, not the creature. You know, we all worship something. You might worship your car or your job or your money. You might worship power or possessions. Maybe you worship entertainment or entertainers or sport. God calls us to worship him. Now, there are two more angels that speak in the everlasting gospel, but we will come back to them another time. And the messages wrap up with God saying in Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We'll look at the rest of it another time. So we have an important gospel message given at the close of time that calls the world to turn towards God, embrace the message of the Bible and recognize Jesus as creator. And you're not surprised about that. Remember last time I spoke about a great conspiracy underway that's causing people to turn away from God. In God, there is a life. And when you turn your back on God, you're turning your back on life. You know, Some people get angry with God. They say, well, I'm done with God if that's what he's going to do. Oh, don't do that. You're turning away from life when you turn away from God. And you see, this is one reason Satan appeals to ego. In many circles, you are wise. You are educated. You are clever if you criticize the Bible, if you think the Bible is old-fashioned. But God wants the very best for the human family. We read... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What God wants for you is to have life. The world is coming apart. So God calls to us to turn to him and not just in form, not just in a a sort of going through the motions kind of way. You know that Paul wrote that in earth's last days, there'd be masses of people who would have what he called a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. God wants better for you than that. Revelation 14, 7 says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. You see, this has something to do with preparing people for judgment and seeing them through it. God doesn't set you up to fail. He sets you up for victory. If you've ever been a failure, God wants to turn that failure into victory. Failure doesn't feel good, but you've probably heard that Abraham Lincoln lost several elections before he became the president of the United States. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. The Beatles were rejected by record labels. Did you ever hear of a company called Data? It existed for a short time and then collapsed. The company failed. Maybe it failed due to poor management. After all, it was started and run by a fellow named Bill Gates. Now, although the statement is honestly taken out of context, Oscar Wilde once wrote that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So let's look into the future. As we have seen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. So how do we turn around from spiritual failure, especially if there's a judgment coming? And we know that God's not going to miss anything in the judgment. How do we get to the place of victory? How do we look forward in confidence in a time of real trial? Let's find out when this judgment is going to be. And how you can face it with confidence. In the book of Daniel, we're actually given a picture of the judgment in process. Starting in Daniel 7 and verse 9. Daniel writes, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. And the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels... As burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened that 's awesome. The Bible says in second Corinthians five and verse ten that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes twelve Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. In the book of Daniel, God actually sets a date for the judgment, not a date for the end of the world or for the return of Jesus, A date for the judgment. Let me show you this curious date. Daniel 8, 14. And he said unto me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So what does that mean? The Bible talks of two sanctuaries, one in heaven and one on earth. The one on earth was portable. It went with Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. The heavenly sanctuary is God's temple in heaven, and you read about that in the Bible. Look in Revelation 11. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. That's the temple, the sanctuary in heaven, the sanctuary in the wilderness. And then the temple on earth were God's way of teaching his people about the plan of salvation. It was the center of the sacrificial system. And those Old Testament sacrifices were full of meaning. In Exodus 25, God said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What does that say about God? It's always been God's plan to dwell with his people. What does that tell you? Exodus 25, 9, according to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. God said, I'll give you the pattern to follow and you build me a dwelling place so I can dwell with you. Now, the sanctuary they built was divided into the holy place and the most holy place. Daily offerings were ministered by the priest in the holy place, the first room. But on a special day every year, the high priest went into the most holy place And the sanctuary was cleansed. That was judgment day. The day we refer to as the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the day on which the record of the sins of the people were blotted out. Throughout the year, they'd taken the offerings down to the sanctuary. And the blood of those innocent lambs was taken in and ministered there. The sins were transferred from the sinner to the lamb. And then from the lamb into the sanctuary. The people were no longer under condemnation for their sins, but the record of their sins remained until the day of atonement, when the record was blotted out. That was judgment day. Those who were repentant had the record of their sins blotted out. Those who were not repentant were cut off from Israel. That was the cleansing of the sanctuary. So when Daniel wrote, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Every Jew knew he meant that there would be a judgment day. So let me ask you this question. Have you got any idea in the world what Jesus is doing right now? The Bible tells us, this is Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus appears in heaven for us. And what's he doing for you there? He's appearing for you as your high priest. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then, that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The emphasis is on mercy and grace. Jesus is our high priest, our advocate, as John said. That's a picture of a good and a great God. There won't be a miscarriage of justice in heaven's judgment. We know Jesus is our high priest. He's in the heavenly sanctuary as our advocate. And just as there was a cleansing of the earthly sanctuary, there'll be a cleansing of the sin record in heaven. That's judgment day. It's really like an audit. It's a review where Jesus looks at heaven's records to see who has truly repented and who has not. You see, before anyone is saved ultimately or lost, Jesus will show that the saved are saved and the lost are lost based on their decisions. They've either surrendered to God or they haven't. The judgment isn't God looking at your life through a magnifying glass, hunting for dirt. It's simply God honoring the decisions you have made for him or against him. So when's this going to take place? At the end of the 2,300 days. Now, Daniel was receiving this information in about 550 B.C., 2,300 days is about six years and some change. So this would mean then that the judgment would take place in 544 BC or so, two and a half thousand years ago. Well, we know that's not the case. So look at this with me. Daniel was told that the vision refers to the time of the end and that it refers to many days in the future. So how can that be? Well, in the Bible, multiple times, God uses a day to represent a year. So 2,300 days would be 2,300 years. Now that makes sense in terms of the cosmic timeline. So God sends an angel to explain it all to Daniel. And the angel says, 70 weeks are determined for you and your people, uh, determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's a lot. Now, all of that wasn't going to happen in, what, 70 weeks, a year and four months. So let's remember the symbol. A day represents a year. No, that doesn't mean six creation days, six years. It means in prophecy, a day represents a year. When God said 70 weeks, That would be 70 weeks of seven days, which would be 490 days, which is 490 years. Daniel 9.25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And there's your starting point. The going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. If we could find that, if we could find out when it was decreed, Jerusalem would be restored and rebuilt, we would be onto something. Well, I've got good news for you. The decree is found in the Bible. It's not hidden. It's just ignored. You know that some people refer to some parts of the United States, rather ungraciously, I think, as flyover country. The idea being you just want to get from here to there without dealing with everything in between. A lot of people have flyover country in their Bible. They'll read Genesis, ooh, creation. Then they'll read about Abraham and the wonderful story of Joseph. And then they just fly over the rest, get maybe down to Psalms and then leap down to the New Testament as though what is in between isn't important. Well, somewhere between Genesis and Matthew is the book of Ezra, a few books before Psalms. And in Ezra 7, you find that decree. Artaxerxes, the Medo-Persian king, issued it. In 457 B.C. So you start with that decree and add those 483 years, you get to A.D. 27. That's when Messiah would come. In A.D. 27, Jesus was baptized. Luke said, 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's when Jesus was anointed, revealed as the Messiah. A.D. 27, which is why Galatians 4.4 says Christ came In the fullness of time, right after he was baptized, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is amazing. When he said the time is fulfilled, he was referring to that time prophecy. He couldn't stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, but he could prod their thinking. They knew what the scripture said. They knew when Messiah should be appearing. When Jesus said the time is fulfilled, he was pointing back to Daniel, announcing himself as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Daniel 9, 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. Jesus was cut off when he died on the cross. Verse 27, he would confirm the covenant with many for a week, a time period of seven years. Those seven years began in AD 27. In the middle of the week, the sacrificial system ended when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was torn in two. No more sacrifices because the true lamb had died. Romans 5, 6 says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at this. Decree in 457 BC. Jesus baptized 69 weeks later. In the middle of the 70th week, he died on the cross. And at the end of the 70 weeks, 34 AD, notice what Paul and Barnabas said in the book of Acts. It was necessary. The word of God would first be spoken to you, but since you reject it, And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. You see, after Stephen was stoned, the privileges of the gospel were to extend to the entire world. So what we see in this prophecy is it's crystal clear, Jesus is the Messiah. Unless, of course, you believe the Bible writers just got lucky and made predictions that just happened to come true. Our Savior on earth and our mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, let's add the rest of the years of the 2,300-year prophecy. You see what happens. Start in 457. Stretch out 2,300 years. Remember to account that there's no year zero, and you arrive. Judgment Day, 1844. So, you may ask, what happened in 1844? Well, nothing at all. Nothing on earth. But in heaven, Jesus began his work of judgment. The work of determining who honestly accepted him as Lord and who didn't. It means we're living in the judgment hour. Well, why has it taken so long? Well, I don't think there's any hurry. And both you and I are very glad the judgment didn't finish 100 years ago. If it had, we wouldn't have heard the good news. But now our question is this. How do we make it successfully through the judgment? This is inspection time. God is going to be looking at our hearts and we are all sinners. Well, this is the good news of the gospel. What does it take to get into heaven? Someone's going to say, you have to be good enough. But no. Listen carefully. Good people don't go to heaven. We can't be good. Remember what Isaiah said? Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The fact of the matter is, God doesn't ask you to be good. Ever. In three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story is recorded of a man who came to Jesus with a question. The man is known as the rich young ruler. And when he calls Jesus good master, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. So if you're trying to be good, the fact is you're trying to be God. Now, that doesn't mean God wants you to be bad. Don't think that. But he doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be righteous. So where in the world do we get righteousness from? Paul wrote that he wanted to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's why the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God what a lot of people don't realize is that what we need in order to enter into everlasting life isn't to be a good guy. It's not to be a nice person. It's to have righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So how do you get it? By asking for it. And then by believing you receive it. Oh, I'm not talking about casual drive through righteousness. This is the real thing. I can imagine it working like this. An auctioneer is auctioning off the righteousness of Christ. It's gonna to go to the highest bidder. Bidding starts low, as often happens. But someone offers fifty dollars, then someone a hundred, but they realize we're talking about everlasting life. So the bidding jumps way up from a thousand to two thousand to ten thousand to hundred thousand dollars. Someone offers a million. Then long comes Warren Buffett. He says, I'll give you a billion. But Bill Gates offers more, and Jeff Bezos offers even more, and the auctioneer says, it's still not enough. And I imagine it's right then that someone in the group raises their hand and says, I don't have enough money, but I'll give my heart. I'll give my life. And that's what it takes, a heart. Not a good heart, just a heart. And when God gives you the righteousness of Christ, he'll change your life. And you'll grow and you'll become more and more like Jesus. And you'll appreciate more and more the things of heaven. It's time to stop thinking that you've got to be good enough for God. It's time to stop trying to be a good person. Some people think that if they had enough willpower, they'd be a better Christian. But willpower might actually be the worst enemy of Christianity. It's a Victorian concept in many ways. The idea that willpower is a force and you might have a lot or you might have a little. Now, there's no question that one person might be able to resist chocolate cookies. Someone else might be able to stop at one and someone eats the whole pack. Someone doesn't care for potato chips. Someone else vacuums them up. Someone might not be bothered by rejection while someone might get all bent out of shape. But that's misunderstanding willpower. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher of Columbia University says, the best way forward may be to let go of willpower altogether. You're going to resist alcohol, but maybe not something else. Resist violence, but maybe not dishonesty. Resist anger, but tomorrow you don't. What does a weak human being do? You don't resort to willpower. Instead, you give your will to God. You let God have it. You remember that God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. And second, you remember that there is power in the word of God. When Jesus was tempted, he quoted the Bible. He said, it is written, which I very much appreciate. It is written. You can try and try and try. You'll have some success and a lot of failure. Or you can surrender and surrender and surrender. You'll have failure there too as you grow. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John fifteen four. Jesus died for the sins of all the world, including yours. Today he offers to live his life in you, to take your sin and give you his righteousness. Remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now offer him your heart. Offer him your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in 1 John 1 and verse 9. And then believe. Invite him into your life and grow. You grow. No one was born running. You grow. Get God's word into your mind. Read the Bible. Pray. Say something to God. Connect with God. It'll change you. I remember being a kid and staying at my friend's dairy farm. He convinced me to grab hold of an electric fence. Well, he did, and it didn't harm him because he grabbed hold of a wire that wasn't connected. He knew what he was doing, so I grabbed the fence. Boom! Felt like I'd been kicked by a moose. I would encourage you not to grab hold of an electric fence, but I would encourage you to grab hold of Jesus. His power will run through your life You'll receive his righteousness. You'll grow and you'll keep on growing. In the judgment, God's going to say, not guilty because Jesus died in your place and he took your sins. And when God looks at you, he sees someone who's pure, who's righteous because you are connected to him. This is the court case of all court cases. No miscarriage of justice. No one found guilty who was innocent or declared innocent who was really guilty will be saved through Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is standing for us in heaven right now. He's interceding for us. I want to encourage you to make a decision for Jesus now to
1: give him your will. Well, wasn't that mind-boggling? To think that Bible prophecy shows us that we're living in the time of the judgment. Pretty solemn thought when you think about it. But isn't it fantastic news to know that at such a time as this, there's no condemnation, not guilty, in this judgment for those who accept Jesus' death and His righteousness. Perfect love, says John, cast out fear. You see, what confidence we can have in God's judgment because Jesus is our lawyer, He's our judge, Imagine go to court and the judge is your lawyer. You couldn't lose, could you? But on top of all that, as John has said, at the cross, Jesus took the condemnation for our sins. What a joy to know that Jesus stands for us in that judgment. Now, in view of the solemnity and the assurance of tonight's presentation, John wants each of us to make a decision tonight. Now, we want to get a decision card into your hands right now and we're going to do it by our mobile phones. So get your mobile phone, and here's what I want you to do. Take out your phone and text tonight's code word, BELIEVE. Now, if you're in Australia, text BELIEVE to 0428 833 386. And if you're in New Zealand, text BELIEVE to 875. Again, if you're in Australia, text BELIEVE to 0428 or if you're in New Zealand, text BELIEVE to 875 Now you're going to get a link from us, which will take you to a decision card on your phone, where it's going to ask you for some details on how we can connect with you, but right at the bottom of the card, you'll find four questions, which I want to take you through right now. So let's go to those four questions Question number one I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my personal Saviour. that's your decision, just check number one. Let's go to question number two. I repent of my sins and believe that God forgives me and gives me salvation as a free gift. If that's your decision, just check number two tonight. Then question number three. I choose to surrender my life to Jesus and I desire to live my life according to his word. Again if that's your decision just check number 3. Number 4 says I'm rededicating my life to Jesus today. Perhaps you have accepted Christ but you want to rededicate your life to Jesus. Then you check number 4 right now. And, of course, if you have a request for prayer, just type in your request underneath that fourth question you'll see there. And, of course, don't forget to put your details, like your name, first name, last name, phone number, email, and then push submit at the bottom, that will send it to us. Well, let's pray as we bow our heads to God. Father, we thank you for tonight's solemn message, but a joyful message. A message that says we can have confidence at such a time as this because Jesus died for us, took our sins and now we have his righteousness and because of that we begin the life eternal. We have confidence in the day of judgment. Thank you. May we put our lives in your hands today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Rebecca, over to you.
0: Thanks, Gary. Now we want to give you access to tonight's lesson guide where you'll be able to get more insights into tonight's topic. To get access to the guide for tonight, go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au and click on the free offer link. Well, thanks for joining us again tonight. Don't miss tomorrow night's program, Earth's Ultimate Remedy, at the same time, same place. See you then.